Hello and welcome to our final episode of Season 2. This is the Fixing Healthcare Podcast with Dr. Robert Pearl and Jeremy Kaur. I am one of your hosts, Jeremy Kaur. I am also the host of the popular New Books in Medicine podcast, and with me is Dr. Robert Pearl. For 18 years, Robert was the CEO of the Permanente Group, the nation's largest physician group. He is currently a Forbes contributor, a professor at both the Stanford University School of Medicine and Business, and authored the best-selling book, Mistreated, Why We Think We're Getting Good Healthcare and Why We're Usually Wrong. Hello, everyone, and welcome to our monthly podcast aimed at addressing the failures of the American healthcare system and finding solutions to make it once again the best in the world. As listeners know, our guests in season one were chosen for their expertise within the current healthcare system. Their bold plans drew over 10,000 listeners and sparked a national debate. The best and boldest of their ideas were part of the first ever Fixing Healthcare survey, which you can visit on my website, robertpearlmd.com. Please go there to check out the survey results and add your own comments. In season two, Jeremy and I have been welcoming guests from outside of the medical mainstream, looking for new, unconventional ideas, along with the surprising insights on the current state of American healthcare. Our guest today is Dr. Kevin Foe, a primary care physician, author, public speaker, and media consultant. He is best known for his platform, Kevin MD, which generates over 3 million monthly page views and welcomes more than 250,000 followers on Twitter and Facebook. He is a leading expert on how social and digital media can connect doctors with each other, improve healthcare for patients, and help people share their insights and tell their stories. Hi, Kevin. Hi, Robert. How are you? In this current season of Fixing Healthcare, we're interviewing experts on different approaches to healthcare delivery and alternative solutions from what most doctors, hospital administrators, and insurance company CEOs would consider. You're our final guest, and I can't wait to hear your thoughts on how social and digital media can improve American healthcare in the future. So let me begin by asking you, do you believe that social media could serve to ignite a revolution in healthcare led by the patient, similar to what is called the Arab Spring or the Twitter revolution? So I think that question has certainly already passed. Social media has given patients, and not just patients, everyone in the healthcare arena, a voice and a platform. Before social media, in order for anyone to get heard, they would have to go on television, they would have to be published in a newspaper. And now, as you know, with the multitude of social media platforms, whether we're talking blogs, YouTube, Facebook, Twitter, everybody in healthcare, clinicians, advanced practitioners, nurses, and of course, patients, they have their own voice. And absolutely, it's leading a revolution. It's changing the dynamics of the clinician-patient relationship. Patients have access to more information than they ever had in the past. And some of that information is good. A lot of it is inaccurate and certainly is something I'm sure we'll talk about later on. But I think social media has certainly upended the dynamic and it's causing multitudes of disruption within the healthcare milieu. There certainly are a lot of voices, loud voices, pharma companies, insurance companies, hospital leaders. 
how loud is the social media voice today? And let's say five years from now, how loud do you believe it will be? I think the social media voice, I can't give it a, a scale, but it's, it's definitely made a difference. And I always look at health misinformation. Um, it has tremendous influence on patients. Uh, if you look at some studies, seven out of 10 internet users, they use the web to look for health information. And a lot of that information sometimes is inaccurate. And we need to go no further than the various inaccuracies about vaccines and autism and the false connection and how pseudo practitioners and people who falsely believe any connection between vaccines and autism have capitalized on social media much earlier than we in the healthcare field. And they have a several years head start. But what that does is populate the online forums with a tremendous amount of misinformation. And now with social media, especially Facebook, they can use those platforms to amplify that misinformation. So I think there's been pushback against that in the last year or so with Facebook and YouTube. They're altering their algorithms. And I think now physicians are realizing the power of social media and we're using it to fight misinformation by creating accurate information and creating a counter narrative against that. But we have a lot of catch up to do. They have a several years head start. And as you know, when it comes to online media, a several years head start can might as well be decades. So I think the tide is turning um, and we have a lot of work to do. And to get back to your initial question, yes, it's uh, really been disruptive uh, in both good and bad ways. What physicians uh, can do, I mentioned it earlier, is a couple things. Not every physician is going to have the time to create content online. And as you and I know, it takes a lot of time to create content. And how long does it take you, for instance, to write one of your articles? About 10 hours. <laughs> That's a significant amount of time and not a lot of physicians have that time. So they can use social media to guide patients to better source of information. They could amplify physician voices that they think contribute accurate information um, and really act as guides to patients who may be looking for that information online. And I always view it as a partnership. Doctors and patients should uh, be partners um, because there are a lot of doctors I talk to. They don't want their patients online, but I always tell them that it's, it's going to happen anyway, whether they like it or not. So we might as well partner with patients and help guide them to reputable sources of health information, educate them in terms of what kind of websites are accurate, what kind of websites are legitimate, what are some of the tip-offs that they should look for whenever they're online. There's a tremendous danger to public health with um, some information, and I always go, go back to vaccines and autism. And I think that whenever you have measles outbreaks at record levels across the country, and when you have these threats to public health, then, you know, I'm, I'm certainly no lawyer on First Amendments, but I, I certainly think that some of the algorithm changes in terms of what Facebook and YouTube are doing in de-emphasizing clearly wrong information, I, I, I absolutely fully support because uh, sometimes patients, they don't have the tools to, to recognize what's accurate or what's not. Um, if you look at a lot of the anti-vaccine movement, you know, they certainly cite their own studies and those studies certainly don't pass a lot of muster from the medical community. Kevin, in 2013, you wrote a book titled Establishing, Managing and Protecting Your Online Reputation, a social media guide for physicians and medical practices. What can you tell 
listeners about the guide and what's your advice for physicians who are dipping their toes into this evolving social media world? So a lot of physicians, whenever they hear about social media, they always see it from a perspective of risk. They always hear social media from hospitals and their medical centers about how doctors are getting fired because they're posting inappropriate content online, about how it takes up a lot of time. And now you hear about a lot of the misinformation that social media can perpetuate. And really, it's a negative perception of social media. So what I try to do is share stories from the other end, a more positive aspect, why doctors should use social media. And um, because it's certainly changed my life. And certainly, I, I know that you've used social media positively, and it's made a huge difference, not only to myself, but also to my patients and to my colleagues as well. So I wrote that book really to, to share my story and share some of the more positive aspects of why doctors should use social media. And really, it boils down to three. Number one is to guide patients to better sources of health information. And we talked about misinformation online and I present a case why doctors need to go online themselves to create that counter narrative of factual and accurate health information. Number two, more patients than ever are Googling their doctors online. I think more than half of patients Google their doctors and research them. And whenever I see a new patient in my clinic, they often know more about me than I know about them from my online presence. And a lot of doctors are are frankly scared of that, but they really shouldn't be. And some of them tell me that they don't want any online presence at all. They don't want anything to do with that. But I really tell them that whether they like it or not, they already have an online presence from these third-party review sites, right? They always garner public information about clinicians and they put profiles up. And whether clinicians like it or not, they already have an online presence. So they need to define that and be proactive about it. And using these various social media platforms, it's a powerful way to do that. And the third reason why clinicians need to use social media is really to make our voices heard. Our healthcare world is changing by the day. There's going to be some seismic changes in the coming years. And I think it's important for practicing clinicians to share their story and have a voice in that conversation. And as I mentioned before, in order for our voices to be heard, we needed to go on television, be published in mainstream media. But now we have powerful tools that give us our own platforms, and they're tremendously powerful. Not only the platforms themselves, but as a conduit to connecting with mainstream media, like writing op-eds in a newspaper or connecting with television producers. Because I think that it's important for us to share our story and really have a seat at the table so we can influence the healthcare conversation going forward. You're absolutely right. You know, my Forbes blogs were read by over 5 million people. If I had to reach that kind of audience giving keynote addresses, it would be uh, more than a uh, one or two every single day to have done that. And social media allows that type of broad reach, more importantly to me, actually to a very diverse audience. And I think if we're going to change American healthcare for the better, we need to bring as many people as possible to the table and engage in that conversation. No, I completely agree. And I think just jumping off from that, I think if there are a lot of issues that impact clinicians, you know, whether it's the electronic medical record or the lack of primary care. And I really believe that in order for change to be made, we need to connect with patients because when you talk about the healthcare decision makers like politicians, they're going to be listening 
more to patients than they are to clinicians. So I think we need to get patients on our side. We need to let them know what goes on behind closed doors, some of the struggles that we deal with, because our struggles are going to be patients' struggles as well, because what affects us is going to affect patient care. So I think that social media is a way to unify our voices, and hopefully by uniting both clinicians and patients, we could influence the healthcare decision makers. Your blog, Kevin MD, is the number one by far uh, blog uh, in healthcare from my perspective. I read it every single day. And I've noticed that increasingly there are articles being posted on physician burnout, uh, probably three to five sometimes each daily publication. What have you learned about physician burnout from the feedback that you, from the, I'll say hundreds, if not even thousands of pieces of feedback you've received through your blog? It's what used to be a hidden epidemic. And what I try to do is, is publicize that by using my platform to share these stories. I don't think clinicians have a lot of sympathy. Um, you know, a lot of patients see physicians, you know, the, you know, the stereotypical you know, rich doctor with the yachts and fancy cars and, you know, you make X amount of dollars. Why should you worry about being burned out? And I think it's a tremendous problem because if you look at various surveys, Physicians who exhibit symptoms of burnout can exceed 50%. And they leave medicine early, they go part-time, and that's certainly contributing to the, especially the primary care shortage. And as more and more doctors just drop out of clinical medicine. I make a conscious effort to really share those stories. Um, they're certainly unsolicited. I get hundreds of stories every week. Uh, a lot of them have to do with burnout. And I think it's important to pull that curtain back and let the public know some of the issues that physicians are facing. We're all human too. And if you look at some of the reasons why clinicians are burning out, it, it, it certainly affects patient care. To answer your question in terms of what I've learned, I think the core reason why physicians are burning out is really a, a lack of empowerment. Physicians used to practice in private practice settings, and, and now that they're becoming in the minority, there is increased bureaucracy, increased regulations, and of course, we have electronic medical records that really are lacking when it comes to physician friendliness. And that lack of empowerment is certainly, I think, a major contributor to, to doctors being burnt out, and a lot of them are going part-time and, and certainly leaving the practice of medicine. And what good are doctors if they're burnt out and, and can't see patients? So I think it's important to expose those stories. And uh, over the past few years, I've gotten responses from patients saying how enlightened they've been in terms and, and, and how they never knew what physicians were going through. And whenever I get an email from a patient who, who tells me that, it really strengthens my resolve to, to go on and continue sharing these stories. If you could do two or three things to address the problem, what would they be? Well, I think it's, it's, it's really to empower physicians again. And to me, it, it's really control over not only their practice, but I think there's their schedules as well. I think you need uh, physicians today. They, they want a proverbial balance when it comes to work life and home life. Um, I think that one of the better best ways to really combat burnout is to give clinicians certainly that option to practice um, according to, to how they would like. I still think that there's too much of an emphasis on, on productivity and meeting RVU targets. And I certainly know that's the reality of our healthcare system, um, even though we're slowly moving away from that. 
but I think that emphasis on productivity also is causing a lot of physicians to to burn out. So perhaps if we move away from a system and reform how clinicians are being paid and perhaps less of an emphasis on productivity, I think that will also go a long way into into preventing symptoms of burnout. You continue to practice internal medicine, which is the specialty you trained in. How has your practice changed across your career? I'm seeing fewer patients. I think that when I first got out of residency, this was 17 years ago, I've only really worked at one job. Uh, I practice in Nashville, New Hampshire. I practice in a hospital-based setting. There are four of us uh, in the clinic, and I'm certainly very happy there. And when I first started out, I didn't know any better. I, I would see you know, 25, 30 patients a day in the primary care setting, and I realized that it really wasn't sustainable over the long run. So after about 10 years of that, after I had my children, my daughters now are 14 and 10, I realized that's not really what I wanted anymore. I wanted less of an emphasis on clinical medicine. So um, that coincided with the growth of Kevin MD, and I was able to spend more time in that and, and really just give me better balance. So in terms of how my practice has changed, it's uh, um, certain, certainly more of a hybrid, whereas before it was all clinical medicine, and now I balance it with what I do on social media, I balance it with speaking, I balance it with coaching, and then I, I work 0.75 FTE, so I see fewer patients. Rather than seeing 25 patients a day, it gives me the flexibility to see 15 to 16 patients a day, and it's really kept me going. So I think that over the years, just having the opportunity not only to stay in clinical medicine for that long, but also having the opportunity to do these things in social media and meeting new people, meeting doctors across the country, and just opening my eyes to the state of American healthcare and what we can do to fix that. That's certainly been an evolution um, over my career so far. And how do you use social media with your own patients? Well, a lot of them find me through social media. Um, I think one of the things I mentioned was that patients know now more about their doctors than doctors do about their patients when they first come in. They certainly read what I do. Um, in terms of how I use social media with them, it's really just to, to educate. I never give personal medical advice over social media. And there are a lot of patients who are, who are concerned rightly about our healthcare system. And they ask me questions about my opinion about where the healthcare system is going. I certainly point them to some articles on my site. Some patients um, come into my office and they ask me about some recent articles on burnout, for instance, that was, that was on, and they ask my opinion on that. So in addition to that obvious education piece where I can guide patients to better source of health information, I think it's opened up other avenues of conversation where I'm able to engage patients on topics they wouldn't necessarily know to engage about, whether it's healthcare reform or some of the stories that are on my site. And it's really because of my social media presence that that's led to that. So that's been a pleasant surprise. There are multiple issues related to patients that impact their health from smoking that still affects between one in five and one in every six Americans, obesity, growing epidemic with 30% future people experiencing diabetes, the opioid epidemic, which I think uh, impacted New Hampshire, as well as a bunch of other states. How do you see social media helping the medical professionals to assist patients in doing the things that they need to do to maximize their health? So I think one of the strengths um, of social media is that it can bring people together uh, with common interests. So whether it's any of these 
topics that you mentioned. They could bring uh, clinicians with similar goals, um, similar approaches. They could share knowledge, um, especially on Twitter, and really use that as a, as, as a way to, to, to fight some of these issues. So social media's strength, bringing people together, whether it's on Twitter, whether it's through a private Facebook group where um, you have a single topic that you have interest in people unifying behind. Really, I think that's one of the best ways that we can use social media to fight these issues. Increasingly, you're giving talks as well as your social media platforms. How does the transfer of information from your perspective differ between when you give a keynote address and when you write a particular piece for a broad audience on social media? So the biggest difference is that people who I talk to in conferences, they don't necessarily know um, who exactly I am. Um, in general, physicians aren't on social media reading medical topics. So I definitely talk to a, to a brand new audience whenever I give these keynotes than I do on my site or on Facebook and Twitter. So I've been sharing a very similar advice for the last 10 years that I've been speaking. Um, I think there is still a lot of negative connotations when it comes to healthcare social media use. I think there's a lot of skepticism. Um, so whenever I give talks in person, I always share social media from that positive perspective. And it still opens up a lot of eyes. Whereas on my own site, people know what I do. They've been reading me for the 15 years that I've been doing this. And um, they're already versed with the various avenues that we can communicate with social media. So I'm always almost preaching to the choir online. Whereas when I go and meet people in person, there are people who don't know who I am. How do the different uh, generations respond to your social presence or how do they differ in their response to your social presence? So it's probably not surprising. Um, the people who did not grow up with social media, they still view it with a lot of skepticism. They, they see it as a waste of time. I have enough patience. I don't necessarily need to be on social media. I don't need to worry about my online reputation. So there is a generational gap. It is very exciting that people who have grown up on social media, whether it's the new residents, the younger physicians, the medical students, they social media was there all throughout their lives. So my goal with them is to try to harness that knowledge and try to harness that familiarity of being online um, into making change, uh, making their voice heard, uh, advocating for their patients, advocating for a clinician's role in the healthcare reform process. So you want to translate that enthusiasm and knowledge in social media know-how into ways that we can advance medicine. So there's certainly an age gap with that. I, I, yes, I do have some older physicians who they have their light bulb moment and they want to get on, but by far the the, the, the enthusiasm lies with those in the younger generation where they did grow up with social media. I'm sure you follow closely the response rate to each of the pieces that you post. Are there a couple that were particularly successful that come to your mind over the past few years? Anything that that tells a poignant story of, of burnout, because I think that this is something that before social media and before I started writing and putting pieces on burnout, it was kind of like a hidden epidemic. A lot of physicians didn't necessarily want to write about that, didn't want to share about that, but I certainly want to normalize that. So there are pieces where physicians would share a particularly poignant story about their burnout experience and what they did to solve it. 
And those certainly resonate on Facebook. Um, as you know, on Facebook, stories resonate. And there are uh, certainly a handful that's been shared 10, 20, 30, 40,000 times on Facebook. And when it goes viral, it really shows how much that topic resonates uh, among clinicians because I think it's something that they identify with and they're reading it on, say, their Facebook feed and they're saying, you know what, I feel like that too. And this is the first time that another physician has wrote about it. And, um, you know, they join in and they share that comment. They say, I'm experiencing that too. And they share it in their own feeds and that's how it spreads. So um, I've been doing this for the last few years. I think uh, topics that were previously taboo, like burnout and physician suicide, it's becoming more easily talked about now and physicians aren't afraid to share. And sometimes they even put their real name behind some of these stories. And I think that's a wonderful thing because it really shows that we are human. And that's something that we definitely need to communicate with our patients. Are there any pieces you've posted that you regret having done so? I think over the last, how many, 15 years of my site, I've posted, there's over 30,000 articles on my site. So um, have I certainly regretted a few? Absolutely. I think, um, as you know, with social media, if there's something that's controversial or there's something that gets negative feedback, I will know about that right away. And it never feels comfortable to have a backlash on Twitter, for instance, or an outrage on Twitter um, online. So yes, there have been where the author um, identified a patient, um, for instance, or promoted a little bit of a controversial stance. Um, sometimes I would have to make a judgment call in conjunction with uh, some of my editorial colleagues at MedPage Today, who I partner with. And yes, there have been a couple of times where I, I, I was forced to bring things down, but that, that hasn't happened very often. Um, I think that it's been a learning process. And over the last 15 years, I know what works. I know what not to do. And I've learned from experience. I think um, just going through some of these experiences myself is the biggest teacher because, as you know, no one teaches you how to use social media in the healthcare world. So it's kind of like trial by fire over, over the last 15 years. But doing this and posting over 30,000 articles, I know uh, what not to post. But we live in an environment where people can get outraged pretty easily. So you just have to walk that line between being provocative and stepping over that line. One of the things that surprises me all the time is how much patients will tolerate in the health care they receive that they would never tolerate in other aspects of their life, like banking or travel or retail, and the idea that you can't just go ahead and schedule your own visit or have uh, all your own medical information easily available to you. These are things that they would never tolerate outside of health care. Do you have thoughts about why they tolerate it? And more importantly, how social media can actually make a change to give people the convenience that they should have in their health care, consistent with the other parts that they would demand in the rest of their life. A lot of times, patients just simply don't have a lot of choice. When they need health care, who would they go to? They would have to go to their local hospital. They have to go to their local emergency room. They'll find a primary care doctor. And a lot of times, there's just not a lot of choice. And when you compare that to hotels, banking, um, shopping, patients have choice. In healthcare, they don't. Um, it could be limited by their geography. It could be limited by their insurer. That's one of the reasons why I think healthcare has been slow to change is that we just don't have any uh, competing forces that force us to change. 
Now, I think that's certainly slowly changing because when you talk about convenience, like patients don't necessarily want to wait three weeks to see their primary care doctor for an urgent matter. So you're seeing uh, all these uh, urgent care clinics that are coming up. Uh, you're seeing companies like CVS starting to have more primary care features, and these are competing with primary care offices. And um, I think it's, it's really a matter of our own doing. We haven't given patients the convenience that other industries have, have given them, and it's, it's our own fault that we haven't. And now we have competitors that are traditionally outside of the clinician world giving them these services. The question, you know, can social media, does it have, have a role? Maybe. I think when it comes to social media strength, which is sharing information, which is building a platform and connecting people, I think that these are all common features of pretty much any platform. Can it be used in the health IT world? I think that's probably a long ways off. I think the health IT world is just so fragmented right now that um, is there a way to unify social media so we can share information, be more transparent? I think that that's, that's probably not realistic right now, but who knows? Uh, maybe a company will come up with an idea that I haven't thought of yet. So I wish, I think we're slowly moving towards some of the conveniences that other industries are giving patients, but like healthcare, like I say in a lot of my talks is that healthcare is always five to 10 years behind every other industry. So give us a few years and we'll eventually catch up. Facebook and other large technology companies are coming under increased scrutiny around the issue of personal privacy. Do you have views about how we could preserve that in an era of social media? I think um, over the last few years, as with all the articles on Facebook and all the privacy issues, I think they're just a lot more hesitant when it comes to giving private information to companies like Facebook. There's a lot more awareness about what Facebook is doing with our private information. And that's, I think, also translated to the healthcare field. Um, when I see patients and we ask them to sign up for their patient portal on the EMR, and I think there's a lot more hesitance because that requires giving them, you know, obviously their private information and knowing what they know now about how these companies maybe using private information and some of the privacy breaches that come up. And we're seeing privacy breaches in the healthcare field increasingly because the security and health IT is probably not as robust as they are in other industries. So I think that there is an increasing reticence when it comes to patients just, just willingly handing over private information. And as they should be, I think that private information is, uh, I think we all need to be held uh, more accountable and have our feet held to the fire in ter terms of safeguarding that information. What are your own personal three favorite uh, apps or other sources of information on social media? I certainly uh, go on various Facebook groups. I think that's, you know, there are various uh, groups on Facebook about clinicians who may be uh, talking um, about burnout, about clinicians who may be leaving the clinical world of medicine. And these are closed Facebook groups where physicians only and they talk among themselves. And I think that a lot of doctors with common interests um, converse and go on these groups. So I think that's one great source of information. In terms of reading other physicians who are on social media, I like going on Twitter. I have a special Twitter group where I have about 20 to 30 uh, physicians that I follow and they share links, they share articles from their own site. And that's uh, one of the other ways that I 
I stay updated with the various social media happenings in the healthcare world. And I use good old fashioned RSS. Uh, I grew up on RSS. Uh, I know that's not on Vogue right now with all the other feeds that are there, but I subscribe um, to your blog on Forbes, of course, Robert, and uh, as well as about a hundred other uh, physician uh, blogs and healthcare sources that are out there. And they range from media blogs like the Boston Globe Stat, I follow the New York Times well, and then there are other physician blogs who've been blogging for 10 years or almost as long as I have, and I still follow what they have to say. So I think a combination between closed Facebook groups, Twitter, and a curated RSS feed, I think those will be the three main sources of how I stay updated with everything. Do you have any words of advice for people who are interested in posting information in social media, but are afraid to do so? So my biggest piece of advice is that they got to come up with a goal first. Uh, a lot of clinicians, when they hear my talk or when they hear from a marketing expert that they have to get on social media, they immediately think they need to jump into all these platforms and start a blog or start a YouTube channel or do a Facebook Live and just use all these tools available to them. And they get overwhelmed very quickly. So I always say, you got to start with your goals first. Why do you want to use social media? Uh, what Do you want to use it to educate and educate patients? Do you want to use it to guide patients to a better source of health information? Do you want to use it to um, connect and learn from your colleagues? Uh, do you want to use it to debate healthcare reform? Do you want to use it to advocate for a cause? And there are platforms that are better suited to different goals. For instance, if you want to connect with patients, I think having a strong Facebook presence is really imperative. If you want to connect with colleagues, I think Twitter is a better way to do that. Um, if you prefer to be on video rather than write articles, then you could certainly create a YouTube channel, for instance. So I think there are a lot of factors that go in before just jumping into social media. You want to define what your goals are, and you also want to know who you are and how you best can communicate in which medium you're most comfortable communicating in. And once you define those goals and define your strengths, then use those platforms that fit those goals and strengths. I don't think that you're very involved in the more visual ones, whether it's uh, Instagram or whether it's Snapchat or the other analogous ones that exist. Is that an area you're going to be looking to expand in the future? I think knowing who I am, Probably not. I think, you know, I try to do video um, and I think this is, it doesn't fit my personality. It doesn't fit who I am. So I've, I'll certainly dabble in that. But, you know, there are some people, of course, who have a passion on video. Uh, of course, you have people like ZDog MD, who's fantastic on camera and very comfortable on camera. But like I said, I think that you have to be true to, to who you are. And for me, it will be a curator. It will be someone who can uh, write the occasional article is as you look into the future, what's your greatest fear about social media? I think my greatest fear is a little bit of what's happening now. I think back then, I think the ideal of social media is that we could bring people together. Um, you know, I think that one thing that I always say is that social media can bring patients and physicians together and we could speak in a unified voice. Uh, but what's happening now, and you see it in politics, is that people are becoming more tribal. There are actually social media is creating echo chambers and um, these algorithms on their feeds, they're specially curated. So it only pops up 
uh, stories from people that you already agree with. And um, I think that's uh, definitely a problem. In, 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 instead of bringing people together, social media is driving them apart by just making people more tribal. And, and I think that's really shutting down the discourse. And we're obviously seeing that in the political world. And my biggest fear is that um, some of that's going to seep into the healthcare world as well, where you have patients who may just shut out the the medical world and only listen to opinions and stories that they already agree with. And to me, um, that is the, the biggest shame of social media. And, and hopefully that's, uh, it's not going to progress to that point. And your greatest hope for social media going forward? Well, it will be the opposite of that, <laughs> obviously. So I think uh, my greatest hope is that um, we can make a difference um, in terms of reforming our healthcare system and have patients and physicians united with one voice so we can really make changes because right now as you as you said our healthcare system is, is the most expensive in the world the outcomes certainly don't match what the money that we put in we, our primary care system there's severe shortages where the number of uninsured is growing so i think that something has to be done and uh, hopefully whatever changes that we could make in the healthcare system it's going to be driven by practicing clinicians and patients together. So that would be my greatest hope. And hopefully social media can be a tool and platform that can uh, reach those goals. Well, if it makes you feel better, and I'll say what I said earlier, you are the number one healthcare blogger in this nation. I think the impact is far greater than you're giving yourself credit for. I think a single patient voice alone is rarely heard. But I think as the voices come together particularly to the point you've made, reaching beyond small tribes into a broader area. To elected officials, that's called votes. To pharmaceutical companies, it's called reputation. Uh, to healthcare companies, it's called embarrassment. Uh, all the things that are possible through social media brings the voice of patients, and as you say, often clinicians, physicians, nurses, and others together in a way that I actually believe has the potential to change American healthcare uh, for the positive in the future. In your experience, what platform have you found to be the most powerful and which one the most problematic? I think the answer to both is Facebook, um, just purely because of the numbers. Um, Facebook is by far the, the biggest social platform that's out there, you know, several billion users. Uh, Facebook has the potential to spread misinformation it can sway elections so um i think facebook by far is the most influential but with that influence it also has become the most problematic it's been in the news constantly in the past year or so with privacy breaches mark zuckerberg has issued many many apologies and um, to be honest i don't think that he even realized the power of facebook when he built it and he's in a very reactive mode right now because there is just a new scandal that's come up every few months and he has to apologize and then make changes retroactively. They don't have the foresight. They didn't have the foresight to see some of the problems of the platform that he created. So the answer to both would be definitely Facebook. Is it the responsibility? And if so, to what extent of these social media platforms to combat misinformation such as, you know, anti-vaccine speech and when does that get in the way of violating free speech? Kind of what is your thought around that? 
So where do you draw the line on that? Um, I'm certainly not an expert in terms of the, the, the legal, you know, the, the legal angle of that. Uh, but I do think when it when it comes to public health, when it comes to unprecedented measles outbreaks, um, I do think that these platforms have a responsibility to to tamp down information that can that can harm the public. Um, and when you have um, YouTube videos, um, after you play a video, you have the suggested videos leading to a whole bunch of anti-vaccine videos, and I think that that's a huge problem. Um, to their credit, they they are altering their algorithms. They're um, suppressing information that's clearly false, but I certainly don't think they go far enough. Um, I think that when it comes to health misinformation, it has the potential, of course, to to cost lives. So I do think that they need to be more accountable for the health misinformation out there, and I think they need to do more than they're currently doing. If you had any advice for you know consumers. Uh, doctors as well as you know the platforms in general on how to fix the echo chambers that you call as you said what would that be you know i'm not, again i'm not privy to these algorithms as i know other than a superficial level i know that by its nature it's going to surface stories from people that you already agree with it's going to surface stories from your friends but it would also be nice if there was a concerted effort to also share opinions that may be from the other side of the political spectrum that may not agree with uh, some of the stories that that you already agree with because that's that's how we learn right is to listen to viewpoints and opinions that you don't necessarily agree with Um, that's one of the reasons that i read a a variety of newspapers from various political viewpoints Um, i read editorial columns of the new york times and and wall street journal even though they have different political viewpoints because uh you know call me old-fashioned i I believe that there is no one right answer we can learn from both the progressive and the conservative viewpoint when it comes from healthcare, and i both think that they have valid points so i know i think that Having a news feed where you can have um, posts and opinions from across the political spectrum, um, to me, I would certainly welcome that. Uh, now you have politically tinged uh, news reporting. You know, you have conservatives who go to Fox News. You have progressives who may go to MSNBC, and you know, people want their their news reporting with a political tinge and um, to me i think that's a step in the wrong direction i think it's important to have information where you get presented with a variety of interpretations um and uh, it's obvious as you know from from what's going on politically now we're we're moving away from that so and i, I think that's a shame if i if i go on social media for example there's all these posts about, you know, Jessica Biel joining the anti-vaccine movement or, or Jenny McCarthy or Jim Carrey or other big names like that. And you see a lot of the anti-vaccine posts that just look so sexy compared to, you know, some of the, 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 the pro-vaccine or, you know, common sense posts from actual physicians. Do you feel doctors often struggle to be as good at social media as some of the people they're trying to, you know, combat misinformation against? Yeah, I think that we're at a disadvantage. We're, we're certainly not celebrities. Um, we're uh, we're not trained in in traditional media. We're not trained to be Instagram influencers. Um, we're trained to see patients. Um, I think that we have a responsibility to go beyond the exam room um, because celebrities, they're by by their by by their nature, they're going to reach out to more 
people than than a physician would, for instance. So I think that perhaps we need more pro-science celebrities on our side. Uh, we need to present more stories. Um, we need to present scientific studies, not in a dry, empirical nature, but we need to frame it in a narrative that can connect with patients. And I think that these are all techniques that media companies use. These are techniques that celebrities use. Um, and sometimes they use these techniques to spread misinformation. I think it's important for us in in the healthcare field to also use some of those techniques. And we have to make science more sexy, right? We need to make science more more shareable on, on social media. And that really means just telling stories. We need to frame our findings. We need to frame our advice through the lens of a story because stories is what connects with people stories what influences people and uh, i don't see that enough um, when it comes to healthcare information um, oftentimes it's often in boring charts it's in numbers and uh, those numbers need to be framed in a story that can change minds do you think doctors should jump into the the threads or the comments on some of these posts and and actually kind of stand up for vaccines or for good health information? Or do you think that doing so in a way kind of gives credibility to the, the, the misinformation post to begin with? So the online discourse, um, I think it's a very difficult question um, because um, as we've seen in, in other politically charged topics, whenever you get into online discourse, it invariably turns ugly. Uh, people are already entrenched in um, their beliefs a lot of people's viewpoints are already formed and it's very difficult to change. Uh, one of the things I say to um, people who are interested in social media is that there are really three groups of people out there. The first group is that people who would agree with you no matter what you say. And then another third would be people who disagree with you no matter what you say. And then finally, there's the last third of people who can go either way. And I think that's really the audience that you want to target when 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 you're talking and you're, you're persuading online. Um, recently, you have physicians who engage with the anti-vaccine movement, and the anti-vaccine movement has retaliated against them. Um, they they blanket their online presence with negative reviews. They harass them. They call their employer, tell them to get them fired. And I think it's becoming increasingly dangerous for physicians sometimes to go online and engage in these really charged topics, you know, whether it's um, politically charged or whether it's with vaccines, because the passions on both sides run so high that not every physician is going to have the resources or the makeup really to engage um, online. If you come across a post from the patient's perspective, if you come across a post on Facebook or, or, or Twitter or whatever, and you see one of your friends or someone you know just absolutely blasting the experience they had with a doctor or at a hospital or in an ICU or something like that, um, how, how, how should a patient know if that's a true red flag or maybe, you know, that their friend or whoever posted that it just, you know, maybe didn't necessarily understand the situation correctly or, or, you know, maybe just had an off experience? So when I, I advise patients to, to interpret, you know, online reviews of, of, of a hospital or a clinic or a physician, I always like to say that's really just one slice, right? Um, 
I think they can expect a hospital or a physician to have universally good reviews. And to patients' credit, they, they normally understand that. I think there have been studies showing that if you present a patient with like you know, 100% good reviews versus a physician who has, say, 70 to 80% good reviews, the ones with the 70 to 80% good reviews are, are, are the ones that has more credibility. I don't think it's realistic to have universally fantastic reviews. Now, if a physician has you know, 0% good reviews, certainly that's, the, that's a red flag. But if there are some negative reviews in there that's mixed in with mostly positive reviews, I think that's perfectly acceptable. Um, I know a lot of physicians freak out and they get really upset and angry and anxious whenever they get a negative review. But these are par for the course. It's, uh, we can't please everyone in, in the healthcare profession. Um, we practice with a lot of constraints. Uh, we practice with a time pressure. We practice with a productivity pressure. And uh, because of that, um, that's you know, eventually going to lead to some uh, patient dissatisfaction. I used to work in hospitality when I was younger. And, and one thing I learned was, you know, guests at the hotels only tended to leave reviews if they had, you know, an experience that went way above and beyond the normal standard or an experience that was absolutely terrible. How do you get, you know, I mean, just perfection wasn't good enough for them to leave a review on most of the time. How do you convince or encourage patients to leave good reviews if they did have a good experience? I actually um, encourage all my patients to leave reviews online, whether they're good or bad. Um, they've done studies on these reviews, and to a lot of clinicians' surprise, a lot of reviews are, in fact, positive and better than they would think. So you just have, uh, whenever I see a patient, I say, you know, I ask them if they have any questions, and I say, if you could leave a review on, you know, you may get a call by a, pay, a patient survey company, and if you like your experience, feel free to let them know. Or if there's anything that we can improve on, feel free to let them know. So I do that with all my patients. And and uh, most of the time, for the majority of them, they, they leave good reviews. So I think that you don't want to cherry pick good reviews, that you don't want to, um, you know, think that if you have a great experience with a patient, only ask those patients for reviews. I think ask all your patients for reviews. And I think a lot of clinicians would be surprised that the majority of them um, are going to be good. Because let's face it, most, you know, hopefully, most patients like us, and uh, we do want um, them to, to share that input going forward. My final question for you is, what's the biggest thing you learned from observing or interacting with patients on social media? The biggest thing that I've learned is that I think that patients, they are not aware of the human side of being a clinician. And they are tremendously appreciative of what goes on behind closed doors. And when we share our stories about um, the sacrifices a lot of clinicians make when treating patients and some of the barriers that they go through, um, they are profoundly affected by stories of clinicians burning out. They're afraid that it may happen to their physician. And uh, I'm surprised by, 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 by how much that affects them. And um, I'm certainly... Uh, appreciative of that when, um, you know, when they ever, they come up to me and say, you know, they, they thank me for, for, for sharing the story. They had, you know, something they had, they had no idea about. And I think that that is a way that we can become closer and uh, hearing from patients about what the stories that they share, not only in the exam room, but also their stories that they contribute to my site. I think there are a lot of physicians who aren't aware what patients go through as well. And 
just sharing those stories with each other, I think is one of the most powerful ways in bringing us together. Thank you again, Kevin. You were the perfect guest for our final episode of season two. Next month in August, Robbie and I are going to provide listeners with a different format for the show. We're going to look back on some of the topics our guests covered in seasons one and season two. I'll have the chance to ask my co-host his impressions as a physician and national healthcare leader, the lessons listeners might take from the interviews, and he'll have the opportunity to ask me my thoughts from the perspective of a patient. Then we'll invite you, the audience, to provide your insights through our season two feedback survey. Stay tuned for that. On September 10th, we'll begin season three, which will focus on the role the government can and should play in American healthcare. The time in this coming season lines up perfectly with what we predict will be a loud and raucous year of debate by presidential candidates on this topic of healthcare. We know you'll be interested. Join us for season three as we turn our attention to the world of healthcare politics and policy. Now let's turn to some listener feedback. We asked you for your ideas on how to fix American healthcare, and we've heard hundreds of responses on robertpearlmd.com. Today, we'll hear from listeners who focused on health insurance coverage and how changes could improve healthcare in this nation. Melissa Gose urged our nation to provide universal healthcare paid for by a way of sin tax on cigarettes, soda, and fast food. Debbie recommended that we get rid of fee-for-service reimbursements, pay for better food and housing, and put doctors in charge of promoting health, access, and lowering costs. Carol suggested universal coverage and government-negotiated prices. She also believes Americans ought to learn the French, German, and Swiss healthcare systems, which each have a greater focus on preventative care. And Preston said, the two largest missteps in American healthcare are treating disease rather than preventing it and the lack of access. Fix these two with universal access to both health and sick care and focus on prevention. Robbie, what do you think of our listeners' feedback? We are fortunate to have so many knowledgeable listeners. As you know, in the hundreds of ideas submitted, there was broad agreement on most of these ideas. Like Melissa and Carol, I believe we need to ensure that everyone has access to healthcare. Taxing products like sugared sodas and cigarettes has been proven to reduce consumption and improve health. And we can learn much from other countries on the best ways not only to provide coverage, but also deliver superior quality outcomes. To that end, I concur with Debbie and Preston that we need to promote health, focus on the social determinants of disease, and emphasize prevention. And like Debbie and dozens of listeners, I recommend a crucial first step is to eliminate the fee-for-service system and replace it with one that rewards superior quality outcomes, not simply doing more. Thanks to Melissa, Carol, Debbie, and Preston, and everyone who has participated so far in the Survey to Fix American Healthcare. You can find all the featured comments on our Fixing Healthcare website. We also invited you to leave your own thoughts and recommendations at robertpearlmd.com. We'll continue to share ideas from our listeners in the future. Please subscribe to Fixing Healthcare on iTunes or other podcast software. If you like the show, please rate us five stars and leave a review. Follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter at Fixing HC Podcast. For additional information on a variety of healthcare topics, please visit the website robertprolmd.com. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and we'll tell your friends and colleagues about it. Together, we can make American healthcare the best in the world once again. Thank you for listening to Fixing Healthcare with Dr. Robert Pearl and Jeremy Kaur. Have a great day.